Hi folks, welcome to another instalment of the Worldwood Station podcast with myself, Worldwood Explorer, Lawrence Waller. As you probably can recall, in the last few episodes, we've been speaking to Paul Woodarge of World War II TV about his uh, his great uncle, Lieutenant Cyril Rand, and his experiences with the Second Royal Hostel Rifles during the Normandy campaign of 1944. And specifically, we've touched on the battle on the 7th of June at Cam's en plan And this involved a company-level attack by the Second Royal Hostel Rifles into the village, which was ultimately repulsed and captured two days later in a battalion strength attack. Now, I've been speaking with a good friend of mine, battlefield guide Ben Main, who wanted to touch on the first East Riding Yeomanry's role within that attack on the 7th of June, 44. So I'm gonna hand over to Ben now to introduce us to what went on. Thank you for uh, having me back on, Lawrence. And it was uh, very good to listen to Paul's podcast. Uh, and as with many people who probably listen to this, it sparks something in, in the head that makes you go off and uh, have a look at things that you've read about before and recap things and possibly look at different angles. And that's exactly what Paul's accounts of his uncle uh, cams on the 7th of June did did with me and led me to put a couple of threads out in relation to the East Riding Yeomanry involvement in this uh, battle on the 7th of June. So uh, for, for this episode, Lawrence, I was just thinking just to try and piece and put together where the East Riding Yeomanry were, what their route would have been that day, uh, remembering that uh, the battle at Cams itself takes place in the afternoon, five o'clock in the afternoon, I think it's it's H hour. So there's obviously quite a lot of build up to this. There's troop movements, tank movements to get into position before they then uh, undertake that task of trying to liberate the village of uh, Cams. Okay, so, no, that sounds that sounds like a great way of doing it. The one thing I should have probably mentioned, I think, obviously for you and I, it's uh, just a simple given. When I say the first East Riding Yeomanry, and Ben has kind of alluded to there, we are talking about a Sherman tank-based unit. So we're talking about armour here rather than infantry. So we're looking at a different aspect of this battle. But anyway, I'll pass it back to Ben. I just thought I should just highlight that before we dive right into it. No, that's fine, Lawrence. And yeah, you are right. It is worth uh, pointing that out, as, as some people may not uh, have heard of the East Riding Yeomanry before, and that they were part of the 27th Armoured Brigade that landed on Sword Beach on the 6th of June. And they were in support of the uh, British 3rd Infantry Division, who were given that task to try and uh, liberate and push down towards calm within those first few days upon uh, landing. And what part of this that I want to also get across is try and describe the landscape as well that uh, the infantry and the armour are operating in to try and build up uh, the picture. And I think on the last podcast uh, that we we spoke together, I mentioned about it may be worth people opening up Google Earth, Google Maps, and also looking and following along as it may enhance their understanding and and learning uh, of this as well. So if we start off uh, on the night of the 6th of June, the East Riding Yeomanry had consolidated just in the southeast corner uh, of uh, Colville, Colville Montgomery. 
uh, and it's where they would uh, harbour for the night. The war diary uh, alludes to that it was actually a very quiet night, undisturbed, which some people might find strange after that uh, opening phase on the 6th of June that it's then being said it's, it's very quiet. No doubt there were... Uh, lots of background noises going on throughout the night from artillery, uh, from the warships still firing in if needed, mortar fire, small arms fire. Uh, but the East Riding Yeomanry uh, diary records uh, a very undisturbed, quiet night. That said, it would have been a very short night for the men uh, with those Sherman tanks uh, being woken up, Ravali, at four o'clock in the morning itself. So an early start, not forgetting the daylight hours in Normandy, long uh, periods of light. So four or five o'clock in the morning, up till nine, uh, if it was good, possibly up till 10 o'clock till you were getting night. So those long daytime hours. So from four o'clock onwards, the men would have been prepared, ready to move out to follow their next objectives and tasks for the 7th of June. And their task on that day would be supporting the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Ulster Rifles as they pushed towards the village of Cams, trying to liberate that village. So the position, once they move out from the harbour area, they head up onto the Perriers Ridge, uh, Perriers sur le Dan, uh, which you'll be able to, to find on the maps, was recorded as a, a high point uh, or in the war diaries, you may find it recorded as 0777. And that just corresponds to the map positioning grid references. Uh, but once you were up onto that ridge line, you would have a view all the way across the uh, landscape, the rolling landscape. Uh, towards the city of Khan. And if we were to stand in that position uh, today and look across the landscape, one distinctive building that stands out is the uh, hospital in Khan, the big, large concrete uh, building that uh, many guides use as their orientation point whilst out in the field to help people know exactly their position when they are out. Obviously, that wasn't there in 1944, but the views would have been looking south towards the direction of the city of Khan. The East Riding Yeomanry then move out. They move beyond uh, Hillman Bunker, so they would have uh, travelled up the road or, or down the road in a south direction. Uh, I believe it's Rue Suffolk now, uh, obviously in honour of the Suffolks that took uh, Hillman on the... Uh, uh, the 6th of June. But again, with that, not forgetting that it wasn't really cleared and fully mopped up until uh, the morning of the 7th, when those who were underground in the bunker finally uh, come out and uh, surrender to the uh, uh, the men of the British 3rd Infantry Division that was still uh, holding that area. So the East Riding Yeomanry form up just beyond uh, the Hillman bunker to the south of it. And if again, if you were there today, if you look uh, across the landscape southwards, you'll see a, a farm, a big uh, barn in the distance. So it's in between that barn and the, uh, the back of the Hillman complex where all of the squadrons form up and then begin to move out. They make their way towards Cam's uh, across the Perrier's Ridge, dropping down into uh, Matiao, and then cutting through uh, what was then known as Cazelle. 
down towards uh, Lemesnil, uh, another small village that sits probably roughly 800 uh, yards away from Cam's itself. Once they get down to uh, Lemensil itself, the uh, the geography of the land, it's quite open expanses of fields there. Uh, so they are or would have been visible, especially when they uh, break cover in between Lemesnil and cross that 800-yard uh, stretch of fields towards uh, Cam's. Uh, the infantry, in particular D Company, were the ones that would be making the uh, assault into the village, but the other companies were in support in that area as well. Uh, if we were to, to go there today, if we were out on the ground now, there is actually a farm track that runs in between the two villages, and that was pretty much the axis of advance for the infantry to leap across that 400 to, well, 800 yards, I should say, uh, of open fields into what I'll class as the very north corner tip of CAMS itself. To see it today, very similar to how it was back in June 44, running across the front uh, of the uh, the village on the approach from a left to right direction as we, uh, we would look at it. There was also a railway, possibly slightly raised embankment, but nothing that uh, would be too considerable. Tanks would easily be able to uh, cross this uh, railway line. Uh, the infantry, again, no problem with them crossing towards the village of Cams itself. The uh, railway now is obviously long gone, but the roadway and uh, the old uh, track lines uh, is now turned into uh, a bit of a walk that you can follow from the area of uh, Northern Carn through Epron and then up to Cams and carry on. Uh, it's a bit of a country walk now for uh, people to uh, go along. But that would be the advance across to that northern tip corner of uh, Cam's, where there is now also a memorial to the second Royal Ulster Rifles. So if you again, if you ever visit Cam's, uh, just before you go down that road to the uh, War Cemetery, there is a memorial, and that was the point where D Company would be making their assault from into the village. On the right-hand side, the right flank of that. Uh, D Company would be a squadron of the first East Riding Yeomanry and on the left side the left flank of D Company would be B Squadron of the first East Riding Yeomanry. You're looking in the region of around 30 to possibly 40 tanks in support of the infantry uh, as they make their way into the village. If we stick with that northern corner of Cam's uh, off to the right-hand side, the main road leads into the village centre itself. Uh, beyond that, uh, it's a very small village, Hamlet, uh, not heavily populated. Uh, the houses concentrated around the area of the main uh, square, uh, if I could call it a square, in Cams itself with the church. Uh, and then beyond that to the uh, south side again it turns into those fields heading uh, towards the direction of Khan. Uh, to the left hand side so this is more in respect of B squadron uh, as you look again now towards that uh, northern tip of Cams you'll notice that the area is heavily uh, or densely uh, tree lined 
and that would obviously have implications for tanks making their way through. Uh, it offers a good concealment for any German defenders. Uh, and then beyond that tree line, it leads down to the area of the old chateau. So it's quite prominent within the war diaries, the accounts of the men that took part in this battle, that uh, there were the Norman high stone walls, six foot, seven foot high walls that were an obstacle, a barrier in their own right. And it was noted by uh, uh, Lieutenant Jenkin uh, that during this action, uh, in his accounts, that in hindsight and reflection after the battle, uh, he feels that these high walls, they uh, should have just driven through them in their tanks to support the infantry rather than looking for gaps to go around or or moving further along, looking for routes and ways around the walls. He, he says that uh, it was probably uh, an oversight in their training uh, that they should have used the power, uh, the weight of the tanks just to not through these walls and uh, given the uh, support but I'll uh, hold there for Lawrence to uh, come in uh, obviously we've just put them into position D company in the north corner of cams A squadron on the right flank and B squadron on the left flank Thanks very much for that, Ben. Um, well, you've obviously touched on there, Lieutenant Jenkins, and as you mentioned earlier, you did a thread, quite a detailed thread, looking at Lieutenant Jenkins' actions on the 7th of June, 44. So I think that's a really good um, point to dive into, looking at his individual actions and his account of what develops on the afternoon of the 7th of June at Cam. So can you maybe sort of take us through how things progress from here? Yeah, so obviously Paul in his episode covers the actions of D Company, so we'll leave that obviously for that. If anyone needs to go back and listen to it, I, I do highly recommend it because these two podcast episodes will dovetail with each other. Uh, so D Company do push in to the village of Cams. They are heading towards the centre and that church. So following the routes of uh, Lieutenant Jenkin, B Squadron on the left side, the left flank. As I just alluded to, their problem straight away would be that they have that tree-lined route avenue following the uh, the route of the old train line that runs south uh, or a southeast direction parallel to the village itself. So they're moving along that track. They're looking of a way to try and break into cams to support on the left flank of D Company. Uh, Jenkin uh, makes note, again, you've got those high walls, the chateau grounds, tree-lined route. They're making their way down and they eventually find a track that turns off and leads in towards the uh, village centre. Uh, to pinpoint that exact track, uh, it's quite uh, quite hard to do. The war diary doesn't give you the exact uh, detail of that neither does uh, Jenkin in his accounts but you can roughly work out the area of where this would be taking place and then subsequently what happened uh, after that uh, he says they make their way uh, forwards and they find this track that leads into the village itself clearly in front of uh, Lieutenant Jenkin is Lance Sergeant Duke in his uh, Sherman, and he's clearly leading the way into uh, Cam's. They make a right turn into towards the village and follow this track uh, towards the centre. Uh, to try and pinpoint exactly where that is, roughly it 
could possibly be the road leading in from the east that uh, is still there to this day, or it may have been a track somewhere along that uh, uh, tree-lined uh, railway embankment that uh, there may have been a gap that allowed them to turn in. But they do turn in and then move uh, westwards towards the centre. Jenkins then notes as they make their way towards the centre where they do actually get to, it very quickly becomes apparent in his words that they have entered the hornet's nest. Uh, Lance Sergeant uh, Duke carries on uh, along and he goes beyond uh, from the account the uh, village centre and takes a turn down a road. This would possibly be taking him out to the other side of Cam's towards the area of Galmanche. And Jenkin notes that he sees the Lance Sergeant doing that and is quickly knocked out in, in his tank, and he just can't do anything about it. Uh, Lance Sergeant Duke is killed in action in Cam's on that day uh, and possibly... Uh, the four other members of his tank crew as well. Uh, with that, it's hard to pinpoint who uh, was in uh, Duke's tank. Jenkins obviously sees that happen. They pull up into the hornet's nest and they begin to engage what Germans are around. Uh, this is just after five o'clock in the afternoon. His account says that when they got there, it's quite clear that the Germans were not anticipating uh, their arrival. Uh, the the account says there's mess tins uh, lying around as though they'd just been uh, uh, preparing food, eating food, and all of a sudden the infantry and the uh, tanks of the East Riding are upon them. So they begin to engage the uh, Germans in the village. On that point of who were they engaging, uh, it's hard to pinpoint the exact units uh, from the German side of who was in CAMS at that time. We know that there were elements of the 21st Panzer Division, uh, so a, a grenadier uh, regiment within the village holding that area. And it's roughly around the same time as well, at around five o'clock, that uh, you can find the accounts that the 12th SS, the Hitler Jugend, come into battle in Normandy over to the west where the majority or the main elements uh, of where they are they begin to engage the Canadians well documented around the areas of Beran or T uh, but you also had elements of the 12th SS pushing into uh, CAMS as well. Uh, 21st Panzer Division and the 12th SS both have armour, so there was a good possibility that you would be seeing Mark IV tanks, which we definitely know were there. Possibility that there may have been Panthers also coming in at that point, but there's no definitive accounts to pinpoint exactly who the tanks belong to in CAMS at that very time. Uh, and I have spoken recently to someone who feels from their research, their source, that uh, it may well have been tanks from the the 12th SS. I believe it may have been D Company, uh, but I can't, uh, off the top of my head now, remember exactly which uh, unit uh, it was. But that is all happening around the time that the British are making this attack. So two sides are coming together at the same time with their own advances, counter-attacks. 
uh, Jenkins, uh, back in the uh, village itself, begins to systematically uh, take on the Germans that are there. Uh, from the records, it shows that he knocked out three or four lorries. He managed to knock out a uh, uh, anti-aircraft uh, lorry stroke uh, truck uh, that was in the village. Uh, he also accounts that uh, as he's peering out his turret, he sees one German uh, over in one position with his trousers down, to put it politely, uh, uh, relieving himself, to which he dispatches with his revolver. So Jenkin uh, is obviously seeing this battle unfold, not from inside the tank looking through a periscope. We know that the tank commanders would usually uh, have their heads out looking around, which uh, is filled with uh, perils uh, in its uh, own right. They do engage Mark for uh, panzer tanks within CAMS itself, uh, and they do knock out three, uh, two or three uh, Mark IV tanks. Uh, at what point he knocks those tanks out? Again, uh, it doesn't pinpoint to uh, the, the exact time because what actually happens with, with Jenkin is he sees that there's no infantry around in support uh, of the, uh, the tanks themselves. So what he does, he gets out of the Sherman uh, and he falls back to try and link up with the men of D Company of the second Royal Ulster rifle. So he's left the tank. The crew are obviously still in the village centre himself. He reaches uh, the men of D Company where they liaise and he's looking to try and get the advance, those men moving into the village centre himself. He then tries to return back to his Sherman, but because of the small arms fire and mortar fire that's coming in, he cannot do that. So he, he's clearly in a predicament. Uh, his tank uh, and his uh, squadron, the troops, uh, are in the village, but he is now cut off from them. Uh, rather than uh, sitting idly or waiting for something to happen, it's quite clear that he uses his own initiative to carry on the battle at this point, and I'll let Lawrence come back in shortly. Well, I think that's interesting. I, if memory serves correct, I'd probably need to go back and listen to Paul's account, but um, your mention of the, the Mark IV tanks, were they dug in at this point, or were they literally just arriving um, into the area? Had there, you know, had there been a sort of like preparation for defence of the village to that level? It's a very good question. The tanks were mobile. They were not static. They were not uh, dug in. So uh, they may have just been arriving with the 12th SS if they were those reinforcements coming in or if they were part of the 21st Panzer Division, they would have been concealed at defensive strategic points around the village of Cam's uh, but they would have been mobile. They would not have been uh, static. Uh, from the infantry perspective, the, the account from Jenkins, when they arrive, it's quite clear that uh, uh, they kind of weren't expecting this, which is, is surprising. It doesn't show that they were dug in and prepared, waiting for that uh, attack from the British to come in. Uh, nevertheless, there would have been lots of places for the uh, Panzer Grenadiers to conceal themselves, whether that's in the buildings, uh, 
no doubt there would have been numerous snipers around from high positions in those buildings or concealment within the wooded areas uh, around cams as well that would uh, lie in wait for anyone who would uh, come towards them uh, advancing uh, through. Uh, but yeah, the main point is those tanks that uh, they would engage are uh, mobile tanks. Well, how did things develop for Lieutenant Jenkins? Did he manage to make it back to his, his own tank? So he doesn't make it back to his tank. What he does do, though, is that he comes across an anti-tank uh, platoon that have uh, six-pounder guns. And what he does, he joins up with them. He clearly sets the gun down uh, in a position where they have fields of fire and can uh, actively engage uh, the Germans in the village, and they begin to use the anti-tank gun. Uh, this is where I'm sure there are, uh, or there is, the account that he does knock out two uh, Mark IV, referred to as long-barreled specials, uh, panzers that are in the village. So it's quite clear that he is uh, knocking out tanks at this point, uh, and he's having uh, an impact with uh, the infantry and D company at that time. Uh, after that action has taken place, uh, as the night begins to, to set in, D company as well as, as well as the East Riding Yeomanry do withdraw. So CAMS uh, is not liberated or taken on the 7th of June. That, that's very clear that that doesn't happen. So the British are withdrawing back uh, to their relevant harbour areas. We heard from Paul uh, of the effect on that uh, and casualties from the second Royal Ulster Rifles. The East Riding Yeomanry, I think, again, off the top of my head, it's seven. Uh, seven are killed in action at CAMS on the 7th of June. One of those, as we just mentioned, was Lance Sergeant Duke, who took his tank uh, leading into the village itself not long after five o'clock. Do we know where Tommy Dukes is buried? Yes, he is buried alongside uh, what I'd say are all of the men that were killed uh, in action on the 7th of uh, June at Cams, and that is at uh, Boray uh, War Cemetery. So that's to the uh, west area of Khan, quite a considerable way back uh, from Cams uh, itself, but they do all lie uh, at rest uh, at the back of the church in the uh, cemetery there. And if memory serves correct, you, I, and obviously a good friend of ours, Alan King, who served with the first East Riding Yeomanry, uh, visited there a few years back. Um, what was Alan's account of you know, his experiences of that attack on Cams on the 7th of June? Alan's account of the 7th of June uh, is quite a, a short one. Uh, from his recollections, uh, I believe it's on the 7th of June that he is actually knocked out in his Sherman tank for the first time since they landed. Uh, he recalls going up uh, or they were traversing up an embankment, which would possibly tie in with a railway embankment in that uh, area. Uh, and he recalls as they went up towards that, all of a sudden the tank stopped 
it began to fill with smoke and then it rolled backwards down the embankment. Uh, they were then pulled from the tank. All of the crew uh, did survive and the tank was uh, was taken away, no doubt, to be prepared. But from Alan's uh, recollections and accounts, uh, it, he didn't uh, engage with B Squadron in the actual centre of CAMS itself. Turning back to Lieutenant Jenkin and that remarkable action you described, was he ever recognised in any way for those events? Yes, he was. And I have the citation for him here, which if it's okay with you, Lawrence, uh, I'll uh, read out. And this was for a military cross. On the 7th of June, 1944, Lieutenant Jenkins' troop was supporting the attack on CAMS when three German tanks engaged them, knocking out one enemy tank and driving off the remainder Lieutenant Jenkin proceeded ahead of the infantry under withering fire into the town. There, he destroyed five enemy vehicles and killed a large number of their infantry. Shortly afterwards, Lieutenant Jenkin was forced to leave his tank to contact the Royal Ulster Rifles. He found himself unable to return to it owing to enemy fire. Observing two enemy tanks, some 1,300 yards away, he personally laid a six-pounder anti-tank gun onto the leader and set it on fire. Throughout this operation, the coolness and courage of this officer were an inspiration. Very, very moving stuff indeed. Um, do we know what became of Lieutenant Jenkins? Did he, did he presumably survive the war? So Lieutenant Jenkins did uh, survive uh, the the war uh, we have his accounts in the book Farad for those who have wondered where I've got some of this uh, information sourced it from uh, the book Farad by Paul Mace uh, recounts the East Riding Yeomanry uh, throughout the Second World War so his uh, testimonies are included in, in that book and for anyone that's listening uh, that wants to learn more about the first East Riding Yeomanry, um, I will post a link, obviously, on the website so you can go and have a look at this book. And I highly recommend it. It's, it's, ben points out it's a fascinating read and some very interesting first-hand accounts to boot as well. But uh, I think that, that that's probably it, isn't it, Ben? Um, looking at the battle for cams from the first East Riding Yeomanry's perspective. So thank you very much for joining us today and obviously highlighting Lieutenant Jenkins and his experiences on that day. Thank you for having me along. Thank you for listening, and also a big thank you to Ben for joining us today. I'll be posting a link to the book Farad by Paul Mace for anyone wishing to discover more about the first East Riding Yeomanry's experience during the Second World War. I'll also share a link to the interesting thread that Ben has done on Twitter, which shows maps of the area illustrating where these actions took place on the 7th of June 1944 at CAMS. So you can find all this by following us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube at World's Nation and also Instagram at World's Nation HQ or visiting our website www.nation.com. And if you wish to help support the World's Nation podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review, as is always greatly appreciated. Alternatively, you can also go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash www2nationhq. A link for this is in the podcast bio below. 
And there you can discover more about how you can get involved with the podcast, including being able to have your sound topics you wish for me to cover in future episodes, and even sneak previews where we can look ahead so you can have the opportunity to fire in questions you'd like me to put to our guest speakers. Looking ahead to the next installment here on the World Station podcast, we'll be talking with historian and author Steve Darlow about one of Britain's most iconic wartime aircrafts in the form of the Avro Lancaster, and learning about the story behind its conception and manufacture, as well as those crews who flew it and its operational record during the Second World War. Anyhow, until next time, it's Lawrence Waller signing off for this episode of the World Station podcast. Mm-hmm.